Good morning. Go ahead and open your Bibles with me, if you would, to the book of Ruth. It'll be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Itty bitty four chapter Ruth. And as you do, I, I cannot think of a better book for us to dive into during this Advent season than this one. I found this book to be incredibly in, encouraging. Um, it has every component of a great story right here. It, it's got the heartache. It's got romance. It's got redemption. It's got intrigue. It's, it's, it's all there in this small little four-chapter book. It's got it all. But before we dive into the book, I'm, I, wanna, I want you to think back, and we've, we've done this exercise before, but think back to all the plans that you have made for your life. Like, go back to kind of a certain point, maybe before college, maybe high school years, whenever, and just think of all the, the plans that you had for your life. Like, you're going to go into this college, you're going to get this degree, you're going to marry at this age, you're going to live in this place, and you're going to have this many kids, and this type of job. And we've joked about it in the past, but how many of us would ever have thought we'd be living in West Virginia? Um, <laughs> You know, I mean, not to knock West Virginia, I love this area, uh, but it's just like never in my wildest dreams did I think I would be living here. Uh, and God has a way of changing our plans, does he not? Because we look at all those plans that we had and what happens to those plans? Life. <laughs> Life happens to those plans. And, you know, some of them come to fruition, but again, as we laugh and as we joke, there's a good number of our plans, likely a large number of our plans. We look at our life now and say, it hasn't turned out the way that we thought. It hasn't turned out the way that we planned. But when I say that life happens, I'm not referring to chance. I'm not referring to fate. Um, what we're referring to is God's providence. Now, the, the word providence is a big theological word that you're not going to find anywhere in the Bible. So the question is, well, Jeremy, then why are we talking about it? If it's not found anywhere in the Bible, why are we talking about God's providence? Because it's a word that we use to refer to what the work of God in bringing all of creation to its divinely determined goal. What we believe is that the Bible, it's affirming that God ordains all things that, that come to pass. And when we say all things, it's like we're referring to all things, like everything, not, not some things, not partial things, but all things. There, there's nothing that is outside of God's control, absolutely nothing. Yet at the same time, what we do not affirm and what the Bible it does not affirm is that God, God is not, clearly, God is not the author of sin. So not the author of sin not the approver of sin, not, that's massive, let's be clear there, God does not author uh, or approve of sin, nor does God's providence destroy our free will or our responsibility, meaning our actions matter, our decisions matter, yet at the same time, God is absolutely providentially sovereign over every single part of it. This is where inevitably someone will come and they'll ask me and they say, or just say, Jeremy, I don't understand that. And then I respond with a very deep theological response. Me neither. <laughs> Me neither. But this is what the Bible teaches. And I'm so glad it does. 
This finite mind cannot wrap, wrap my mind around the infinite truths of an infinite God. But I'm so thankful that he has revealed these truths to us in his word because I find no comfort, and we should find no comfort in a God who isn't in control of all things. Do you think about that? A God who is not in control of all things, because a God who is not in control of all things is not all-powerful. And that means that we, that's the case, we don't really have assurance that all things work for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We like that verse, don't we? All things work for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It's like I cling to that verse, I go to that verse, I like that verse. But the only thing that makes that verse possible is the providence of God. That's the only thing that makes that verse possible. And so in a sense, I come to this series and in preparation, I didn't really intend for it to be, but it has kind of become in my own heart, in my own preparation, in my own life. Um, it's kind of piggybacking on the series that we just came out of. And if you're new with us, we came out of a series, four weeks through the Psalms called Overcoming Spiritual Depression. And then this series is kind of really focused on God's plan for re, of redemption and his providence. And, and when I look at this and I, I see that there have been seasons in my life where all I have had to do and turn to is to cling to know that God is in control. I can't make sense of it. Life seems like it's spinning. It's out of control. Uh, but I come back and say, okay, God's in control. I, I'm, I'm resting in. I'm clinging to these truths. And if that's you today, if you feel like you're in a spot where, okay, this is the Christmas season, I'm supposed to be joyful, I'm supposed to be excited, and right now there's a lot of uncertainty in your life, there's a lot of confusion, there's a kind of a joylessness that is there, I, I pray that in today and throughout this series that you will find encouragement from this itty-bitty little book of Ruth that is so jam-packed full of goodness. Um, I pray that that will be the case. So let's get started. Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Epaphrodites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Maelon and Chilion died. So the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. What an incredibly depressing way to start a book. And we're going to pause right there because if we miss these first five verses of what they're telling us, we cannot effectively understand what the Lord would have us to learn from this book. You'll hear me say this over and over again by any passage of scripture, but context is key. Context, context, context. What is the context that is surrounding this passage? And in verse one, we're learning right out of the gate what the timeline is for this story, when it's taking place. In the days when the judges ruled. It's about a 300 year period of time prior to Saul becoming the first king of Israel. And for a snapshot of what this time was like, if you have your Bibles open, just turn back one page or look over to the last verse in the book of Judges, Judges chapter 21, verse 25. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
That is a horrifying sentence. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. As you can probably imagine, put ourselves in that same spot, we can think about parallels within cultures, no matter what culture we're in, that leads to a spiral into depravity, a complete and utter spiral into depravity. And it's in this 300-year period of time when God would send judges to, to lead the people. Now, we're not talking about judiciary judges wearing black robes, but we're talking about spiritual military leaders, both men and women, whom God would use to deliver the Israelites in their time of need, in their time of distress. So a basic summary of the time of the judges would go like this. The people find themselves in a period of distress, longing, like we, we need deliverance. And they, they come to a point where they repent and they cry out uh, for God for deliverance. And God raises up these judges to deliver them, to restore the people of Israel. And for however long that that judge ruled, there was a relative peace in that period of time. It was God's people living in God's place under God's rule. Doesn't mean it was perfect, doesn't mean it was great. It was actually quite corrupt, but it was better than what it was. So that's why I say relative there. But then when those judges would die, the people would then quickly spiral back into depravity. This period continuing for some 300 years. But then here in the midst of this sits the book of Ruth. A very bright light in the darkness. And we're also told in verse 1 that there was a famine in the land. It's both a physical famine and a spiritual famine that's taking place. Now, it's the physical famine, the lack of grain, the lack of bread in the, the, the lives of Elimelech and Naomi that drives them to go looking for provision for their family. Okay, there's a famine. We've got to take care of our family. What are we going to do? Let's move to Moab. Let's leave the promised land. Again, that should be triggering radars in our head of like, that does not sound like a good idea, but we're going to leave the promised land. We're going to go to Moab to, to care for our family. Now, again, on the surface, that doesn't seem like that big of a deal. It's they're trying to care for their family. They're going to look for the way that they can. But here's a little bit of background on the people of Moab. Back in Genesis, there was a woman who got her father drunk. His name was Lot. And then after getting her father drunk, she slept with him. And then through that sick, incestuous relationship, she conceived a son named Moab. And from Moab, we have the Moabites who descend from him. And they will descend from him. And the Moabites are a wicked and depraved people. They're the ones who sent Balaam to prophesy destruction on the people of Israel before they entered into the promised land. And it was the Moabite women who were the first ones to seduce the men of Israel into worshiping the false gods of, of the pagan land. Now, mind you, that event of that seduction from the Moabite women on the Israelite men led to the death of 24,000 Israelite men. Now, if I'm an Israelite man in that period of time, lesson being, never go near a Moabite woman again if you want to live. But that's not what happens. It's not what, what takes place. We think back about how desperate here, and we think about the context, we think about the culture, we think about the Moabites, we think about all of this, and you start thinking, okay, how desperate must Elimelech and Naomi must have been to move their family to Moab? How desperate they must have felt. But now when they get there, what happens? Elimelech dies. 
So Naomi is now raising these two boys all by herself in this foreign pagan land. And then her boys get older. They have a natural desire to do what? To get married. And what do they do? They marry Moabite women. It's a big no-no. Not supposed to do that. And after 10 years of living in the land, both Moab, both Maalon and Chilion, they both die. Which leaves Naomi with no husband and no sons, no grandchildren. And her daughters-in-laws are Moabites. No wonder at the end of this chapter, she instructs the people to call her bitter. She feels as though her life is empty. And I point all of this out, the context, not to give you some big history lesson, but to point this out to make this point. The people of God are not exempt from suffering. I think we know this, but we need to be reminded of this. Especially in a culture, even a culture of Christianity that wants to teach otherwise. The people of God are not exempt from suffering. Now sometimes, let's let's be clear, suffering is out of our control. Things like natural disasters, cultural depravity, sickness, death. These are all consequences of living in a fallen world. Believers and non-believers alike feel the effects of all of these. Not one of us is exempt. Every one of us will die at some point in time. Thus the circumstances surrounding Elimelech and Naomi. There's the result of, of a fallen world. But we also see that the same, at the same point, some of their suffering was brought on by their own sinful actions, as is some of ours. Like when the famine came, how did they respond? You know, by, by fleeing to Moab? They, they, they fled to Moab. They, they left the promised land and sought refuge under the pagan of Moab. But how should they have responded? By trusting in the Lord by crying out for for repentance on behalf of Israel and asking God to deliver them from the famine. That's not what they do. No, they they take matters into their own hands. But what they should have done is cried out. Remember, just from the history context that we just looked at, when God's people cried out for repentance and deliverance during the time of the judges, what did God always do? He would send a judge to deliver them. But instead of crying out for deliverance, they tried to do what? They tried to deliver themselves. It's like, oh, Jeremy, you're guilty of that. We're all guilty of of that. We don't wait on the Lord very well, do we? We find ourselves in times of trial, things begin to go awry, and we immediately want to create our own solutions. We want to kind of say, okay, let me fix this. Let me do this. While what we should be doing is what we've reflected on just a couple weeks ago, Psalm 4610. Be still and know that I am God. Stop. Stop trying to fix things. Stop trying to create all these different plans. Not to say that plans are bad, but sometimes we just really want to rush into them. I know I do. I want to to fix things myself. Moab looks like a better place. But what does God tell us in Psalm 4610? Beyond be still and know that I am God. He says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. What's he testifying to there? His providence. It's like, I am in control. This will happen. I will be exalted among all the nations in all of the earth. It's going to happen. There's no maybe to be found. Be still and know that I am God. 
You think about Naomi's sons. They've got to the age that they want to get married. We've already reflected upon that. Natural desire, there's nothing wrong with desiring to be married, but there's no Israelite woman to marry. There's no like-minded believers to marry. So what do they do? Do they remain patient and say content in God and say, okay, singleness is the best if that's what you would have for me, O Lord? I'm gonna wait upon you until you provide a like-minded believer for me to marry? Is that what they do? No, what, what do they do? No, they take Moabite wives. They marry a Gentile, which they were not supposed to do. All of this to say, sometimes our suffering is a result of the things that are out of our control. Natural disasters, death, those things. But sometimes it is the result of sins that we commit. But all of it, every bit of it, 100% of it, is working for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And I don't know about you, but I take great comfort in that. Great, great comfort in knowing that all things are working for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But then the question is, how do we know that's true? How do we know that's true? Because of God's providence. Because God is in control of all things. So picking back up with our story in verse six. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went, went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But now watch what Naomi does here in verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. So pause right here and understand that Naomi loves her daughters-in-law. Moabite or not, she loves them and they love her. There's loud weeping that is taking place here. This isn't just a few tears that are coming down their eyes. There is loud, they're lifting their voices, they're weeping. This isn't easy for anybody involved. Naomi's probably thinking in this moment, I do not know how I'm gonna take care of myself. Much, much less you. You go back to your people. Go back. You'll be taken care of there. Do that. She's freeing them from any obligation that they have to her. And here's their response in verse 10. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. You'd think this would be where Naomi would be like, okay, let's go. All right, you're in. All right, let's go. That's, That's not what happens. Naomi doesn't take their commitment at face value. She presses a little harder, really looking to test the sincerity of their commitment, laying out the cost that is before them. Look at verse 11. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. See, what Naomi is doing here is she's making it clear that following her to Bethlehem 
brings no promises of a better life. None. There's no promise of a future husband. There's, there's no promise of, of, of children. There's, there's no promises being set forth here. In fact, she's saying, don't follow me. Don't follow me for the Lord is clearly against me. She's lamenting over all the tragedy in her life. And she's telling Orpah and Ruth, you don't want this. Turn back, turn away, go home, live a life in Moab. And how do they respond? Verse 14, then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. <laughs> what a picture this is. What a, what a picture this is. Naomi's persuasion is enough for Orpah, though sad, to kiss her mother-in-law and to realize the cost is too great. I love you, but I'm gonna stay here. Cost is just too great. But Ruth does what? She clings to Naomi. She's like, I I'm sticking with you no matter what. You can tell me to go, I'm not going. But then what does Naomi do? She presses even harder. She's trying to press her even harder in verse 15. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. Ruth is essentially saying, stop pressuring me, Naomi. <laughs> stop. I've made up my mind. I'm going with you. Second part of verse 16. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. See Ruth's response here? is more than just a commitment to Naomi. Do we see that? The commitment, the response that Ruth is making here is a commitment to the God of Israel. As the language that Ruth uses here is covenant language that we find in Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus, where God promises, he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Makes this promise over and over again to the people of Israel. I will be your God and you will be my people. So what Ruth is saying here is essentially the God of Israel shall be my God and the people of Israel will be my people. She's echoing back these covenant promises. What that is, is a confession of faith. It's a confession of faith. Because look what she says in verse 17. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. Now, who's older there, Naomi or Ruth? Naomi. Who's likely, if things played out with age the way they were supposed to, who is likely to die first? Naomi. That's what we have here. Naomi would. But she, says, she doesn't say here, okay, when you die, then I'm going to go back to my people of Moab. It's not what she says. What does she say? She says, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. She's further emphasizing her commitment isn't just to Naomi, but to Naomi's God, the God of Israel. 
It's a complete abandonment of everything that she's ever known. Family, friends, religion, traditions, hometown, everything. All of it, abandoning it all to follow after the God of Israel. And what this is, is a foreshadowing of the teaching of Jesus on the cost of discipleship. Which is point number two. Discipleship is costly. It's costly. Jesus teaching his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother or more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Again, in Matthew 19, 29, Jesus says, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Jesus is teaching his disciples in this passage and in countless others throughout the New Testament that there, there's a cost in following him. These disciples are the very ones who have already left their nets behind, left things behind, and, and followed Jesus. But all of this understanding of a cost in discipleship is a completely foreign way of thinking in the culture of modern American Christianity. A culture that we live in of easy believism. Believing that if we believe in Jesus, we're going to have our best life now. Believe in Jesus and everything in this world will be great and you'll have Jesus and whatever this world has to offer. Sounds crazy, but that's actually what's being taught among pulpits and in books all over the world. That's exactly what we see from the rich young ruler. It's what he wanted, wasn't it? He came to Jesus asking, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He genuinely wants to inherit eternal life. He, he genuinely wants to, to follow Jesus. He wants these things, not, not denying that. He, he's like Orpah, wanting to follow Naomi. But what, what does Jesus do? He lays out the cost, tells him to go sell everything he has and give it to the poor. How does the man respond? By sadly walking away. He walks away. His, his Orpah walks away from Naomi. And what God is teaching us through his word in both the Old and New Testament is that there is a cost in following Jesus. There's no promise of riches. There's no guarantee that our suffering will end. It may actually increase. But at the same time, he, he's teaching us that God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is more than sufficient to meet every single need that we have. More than sufficient. And here's why. Point number three. God has sovereign control over everything. And there is extreme comfort for this weary soul found in the doctrine of God's providence. Extreme comfort. Read with me the remaining verses of this chapter. Picking up in verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the, woman, the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara." For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of 
barley harvest. Now, using the vernacular of the mountains of eastern Kentucky and of west, west Virginia, Naomi ain't got no joy. None. And if she does, we don't see it. It's a fight for her to have it. She's empty. Self-professed, she's empty. She's saying, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Why? Because she feels that the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with her. And it's easy for us to understand why, isn't it? We read this story, we see her account, we see her suffering. It's easy for us to, to say, okay, I understand why she feels that way. That's what I like about Naomi. She's honest. She's not trying to put up a front. She's not trying to hide anything. She's not pretending everything's okay. If she walked in the door and one of us walked up there and said, hey, Naomi, how are you today? She's not gonna put up the facade that we all are good about putting up. Like, I'm good, how are you? Life's great, how about you? And it's like, no, she's gonna be brutally honest. She's gonna come and say, life's horrible, how about you? That's the way she's gonna come. We need more of that. That's being honest, it's being real. We need more. If we can't do that within a church culture, where are we going to do that? We need to be honest with people. At the same time, I think all of us know kind of how we react because we're anticipating, I'm good. Somebody says, I'm horrible. We can't be like, oh, wow, I'm going to step back from you. No, we've got to press in. We need help, we need comfort, we need encouragement, we need the truth of God's word. But she's returned home to Bethlehem. She's returned home empty in her eyes. She enters the hometown where her and Elimelech has started their life. You think about all the memories that are flooding back in for her at this moment in time. Like she's walking on this road, the very road that her boys likely played on when they were young. And now she has none of them. She feels empty, empty inside. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. And who does she attribute her, acclam- her calamity to? To God. In verse 13, the, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. In verse 20, she says, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Verse 21, the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. In every case, she attributes her suffering to the hand of God. But notice this. Notice how her bitter complaints are cloaked with faith. But cloaked with faith, despite her suffering, Naomi still understands who is in control. She's not denying that God is in control. Doesn't mean that she's happy about all the circumstances of her life, but she's not forsaking the God of Israel. She doesn't understand his plans, but she's not saying to him, like, I don't believe in you anymore. She's saying, I don't understand. See, we see a knife in the hands of a murderer and we rightfully see a destructive weapon, right? But you take that same knife and you put it in the hands of a, of a skilled surgeon and that instrument then becomes an instrument of healing. Total change in perspective. Now the cut still leaves a scar, doesn't it? The pain is still present. Pain is very real. But when it comes from a surgeon, we know the pain is for a greater good. Everything depends on the hands that are holding the knife. So yes, depravity is is evil. Natural disasters are horrible. Death is painfully tragic. 
And our personal sins can lead to even greater pain and suffering. But in the hands of the Almighty God, they are surgical knives being used for a greater good. Even if we cannot see it at the time or ever. Because do you remember how this chapter started? Verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Such darkness, and they pack up and they move to Moab. Nothing but darkness. Now look at how the chapter ends in the last part of verse 22. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. (laughs) The author is doing more here than just telling us the time of the season. He's doing so much more. He's showing us that there is a light that is beginning to shine in the darkness. Yes, Naomi is feeling hopelessly empty, just as some of you may be feeling hopelessly empty today. But what she doesn't see is the greater good that is coming from her suffering. And it's what we all have trouble seeing in the moment or at any point in time. But quickly, from this chapter alone, Look at how God uses Naomi's sin and suffering for a greater good. I'm not talking about big picture here. I'm not talking about 30,000 foot view, but ground level right now in her life in this very moment, verse six, go all the way back to verse six. She arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she's out in the field. She's going about her day-to-day life. She's going about the motions and she hears, maybe from a passing merchant, maybe for somebody who had just come back from vacation. I don't know. But she's come back and she's heard while she's out in the field that the Lord's covenant blessings have returned to Judah meaning that there's a supply of food for the needy. Harvest is plentiful. There's food for the needy. And what does she do? She she rises up immediately and return to return to Bethlehem. She doesn't hesitate. She's not waiting. She's going home. Why? Because she's heard the good news. She's heard good news. There's bread in Bethlehem for the needy. But before she ever heard the good news, before she ever heard it, the Lord was already working in Naomi's life through her suffering, through her circumstances, through her sin, to open her heart and graciously bring her home to experience his covenant blessings. All of this without her even realizing it. He was working in her life to show her her need for him, preparing her heart through all of those things, to respond favorably to the good news. In fact, when it says Naomi returns in the Hebrew, it's a Hebrew verb for repent. Repent, meaning Naomi is turning back to God. Her her going back to Bethlehem is a repenting of her ways and returning home to the God of Israel, which is exactly where some of you find yourself today needing to turn back or turn to the God of Israel, to quit running, to rest in Christ. That's not all we see resulting from Naomi's sin and suffering. It's not all just about Naomi. Remember Ruth's confession of faith? 
Naomi doesn't realize it yet, but God uses her suffering and sin to bring Ruth, a Moabite, to himself. Think about all the plans, again, that you've made for your life and how God has used the unexpected events, the tragedies, the triumphs, the trials, your suffering, your sin, to bring you, our, bring you to where you're at today. None of that's accident. None of that's chance. God's using all of this. But those details are not just affecting your life. Those events are not just affecting your life, but the lives of countless others around you. The plans of God, church, are so great and so extensive It would completely blow our minds to know all the ways that God is using even our screw-ups to accomplish his divine plan. And I've given him a lot of screw-ups to use. He's using them all to fulfill his divine plan. I love this little book. I love this little book. It scares me in some ways. There's so much depth in this book. I don't mean to scare me in a bad way, but just to preach this book, there's just so much here. But I love it. There's so much comfort to be found in the providence of God. And when life seems to be spinning out of control, it's a reminder that he is in control. When our plans fail, and how often do they fail? Quite often. It's a reminder that his plans never fail. Ever. Such comfort. But I gotta lay on this plane. And here's what I wanna leave you with today. Kind of zoom out big picture here knowing that it's because God has shown us grace in giving us Jesus, the bread of life, born in Bethlehem, that we know we will receive, he will receive everyone who repents and believes with open arms. So maybe today you're, you're like Naomi. You've wandered away from the Lord. You try to take your own path. But today you're hearing the good news that he will receive you home. Come home. Repent. Continue to believe and turn to the bread of life today. Maybe you're like Ruth. Wandering Moabite. You don't even know what brought you here today. Hear the good news that Jesus Christ came, was born in Bethlehem, Live the life that you were supposed to live. Die the death that you deserve to die in order to give you a hope and a future that you don't deserve to have. Believe in this Jesus. Rest in this Jesus. Find hope in this God today. Lord, we we thank you for your word. We thank you for these gospel truths. And while we enter into this season of Advent, Lord, we come, yes, as a remembering people, but we also come as a a hopeful people. Not because of the things that we have or the trust we have in our abilities or our life, but because our trust is found in you. Lord, today I pray that you will You will comfort again those who need comforting, encourage those who need encouraging. Help us to be wise in the decisions that we make, but to trust that even in our screw-ups, you are in control. 
Help us to learn from them and to move forward. Continue to mold us and to shape us into the image of your son. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.